Welcome to the Archangel's Lang Show, everybody. Uh, very special guest today, Sir Michael Hill. You are the first knight on the podcast, hopefully not the last. Um, I'm curious to learn so much about you. We, we've talked a lot. We played golf together this morning on your golf course mm. down here in New Zealand. Um, what you know, I, I I know a lot about you, and and, and the people listening are going to get to know a lot about you. Uh, you you came into your success in your life as a jeweler, mm. but what I've heard you say in talking earlier was that nothing went your way until the age of forty. Is that true? That's Is that what you said? Absolutely true. Yes. Can you go back to? Mm. Uh, you know, I read somewhere that said you were bullied. Is that is that the first example of something not going your way, or, or where do you, you know, because I'm just so I know you've written a lot yes. of books about success and things right. like that, but yeah, just for us listening right now, how do you turn that around? Right. Well, I suppose really the fear factor is a very hard thing to to penetrate and to break, and it can really have an iron hold on you. Um, I, I guess when I was at school, I had a very uncomfortable time. I was small. I was in a farming community, and the boys were bigger than me. And I was too well dressed. They were roughly dressed. They were the rough country boys, you know, from the farm. And my mother would dress me up, you know, and um, like a little Lord Fauntleroy. And it, it didn't really go up. It was a natural target for bullying. And I had a hell of a time at school. I really did. I, I, I feared going to school. Really? I hated it. I really hated it. And um, uh, that was one of the reasons um, I, I, well, I, I wanted to leave. Was as, uh, And music was the only thing that looked like I was any good at anything. Um, because I was so nervous at school that I couldn't concentrate. And one of the reasons I was so bad at maths is that I, I couldn't concentrate. Well, I was scared of what these guys were going to do to me, you know, when the class was finished. So, uh, How many kids were in the school? Uh, the school had a, was around about 700. Oh, wow. So a big school. It was quite a big school, yes. Yeah. So it had all the different and grades and everything. Were you able to find any other kids that were getting picked on or anything like that? Um, well, I mean, you're only interested in yourself. And I mean, I was sort of a probably a wimpy sort of a fellow in here on those days. So I, I guess uh, I only, only know myself and I just felt like the only target that there was anywhere. So really. Do you think that when people meet you now, obviously mm. you've been mm. knighted, you, mm. you're, you're a, you know, an extraordinarily successful businessman. Mm-hmm. People look up to you. Hmm. Do you do you think that people would be surprised to know that about your your beginnings? They they might be actually, um, but then then it, it was sort of more to it than that because okay, so we left there and then we tried the jewelry, we tried the the the, the, the violin bit, and I didn't win the competition. My parents thought I would win, so they said, "Well, you can't you can't do this anymore. You know, this has taken eighteen months and nothing's happened." Because um, well, you were basically doing it with the idea that I'm going to make money with the violin. Correct. This yeah. was going to be a job for you. Yeah, it was going to be it. On yeah. some level, were you sort of like mm. lost in trying to find what your job would be? I, I hadn't. I was really, really determined about it and I really thought this was it. But my parents had different ideas and my uncle had different ideas. So, so they steered me into the jewelry business, which was really totally against my wish. I this really is, had no wish to go in there whatsoever. This is the uncle who already had a business. That's right. Does he still have his business? Uh, well, he's died now. And he died, strangely enough, a bitter man because of me, because he, he could never forgive me. And, I mean, it was quite ridiculous. And he never the business never went anywhere. It just sort of, if anything, sort of went downhill. So whereas mine just went completely the other way. Because they they pushed you into joining his business and then yes. you said, when you wanted mm. more, he said, mm. uh, try your own road, pal. Yeah, no, 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 no stuff for you. I'm not going to have you running this place of mine that I've built up all my life. No, no, no. You, 
That's right. So you're out of here. It, it must be so interesting to you to reflect on mm. such a successful career now mm. in hindsight, like mm. like after it's already happened. Mm. But mm. when you're basically starting out and, you know, I heard the story about how you, mm. uh, you offered to join his company or buy his company, mm. he declined. Now, but then when you do finally decide with the help of a friend, how, you're going to start your own business, mm. right? At that point, what to you is the acorn of uh, genius or, or mm. whatever is different in that business yes. that's going to be better than every other jeweler? Very good point. And the thing is, you do need a point of difference. And you, everyone needs a point of difference, whatever they do. Because if you copy, it's, it's never. It's so much harder to be successful. You can be, but it takes so much longer. So being innovative and the different things we did was we had a totally different look with beautiful windows with virtually nothing in them, artistic, absolutely brilliant. You know, at Easter, you'd have like little chickens would be running around in, in, in the window with cracked eggs and crazy things. The windows were just mind-blowing. And people would come for miles just to look at the windows that changed all the while. So there was a huge point of difference there. How, uh, really, just on that, how did you come yeah. up with that idea? Uh, well, I, I was, when I was in my uncle's jewelry shop over there, those 23 years, one thing I was always, uh, I was artistic. So in those days, that you had lots of glass shelves in the windows. There'd be endless glass shelves mm. with, with about 80% of the product was all in the windows. So you'd have um, engagement ring pads with pad number one to number 12. You'd have all the watches, the cooker clocks, the Dresden figures, the trophy cups, you name it. It's their pens, pencils, God knows. It's all in the window. That's right. Looking diabolical, all crammed in. So I gradually Skin that out. When my uncle wasn't there, I'd go. Where you're going? Well, I'd take. I'd start taking away some of these um, these props, and then I'd end up with just one one um, base. And then I started doing some experiment with different windows, that, which got a lot of attention and, and became. But it was in 1969 that, that was the big change, because my uncle always said, "Well, fill the windows up again, son. You haven't dressed them," because he was totally unartistic. Anyhow. In 1969, I won the International Boulevard Window Dressing Competition, which is uh, year for the world. And uh, that was, uh, from then on, I never criticised my windows again. I could do whatever I like. So I, and that I, probably I, gave you confidence. It gave me confidence. That gave me an enormous boost. We just just married Christine. And uh, yeah, we, we, it was, uh, we went away for two months and just saw all the great jewellers of the world and stayed in the great hotels of the world. It was amazing. That, that was a big boost. So, so in a sense, you you sort of had to trust your own gut, go against, you know, essentially be insubordinate, mm. and then when you are, and it is revealed that what mm. you're doing is is smart and and um, you know received, then you get to go around and do more research around the style of the world. So basically, what you did that was different was you sold a product in a stylish way. I mean, I'm almost thinking about yes. if you've heard of the paradox of choice. I'm assuming. Mm. Right. When 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 mm. you see all the jeans on the wall and there's a hundred pairs of jeans, you don't buy a pair. That's right. Or if you do buy them, you're unsatisfied. Yes. So now the stores have four pairs of jeans That's and right. you feel great because you, you were able to easily decide what to order. Yes. So we simplified. We simplified jewelry. We had uh, jewelry. We, we, we only sold uh, really just sold jewelry and watches and nothing else. So we didn't sell the things that was traditionally in a jewelry shop. So all the stuff that took up all the room, you know, and the, the dinner sets and the china and all this stuff uh, and silver plate. And we, we didn't have any of that. We just kept that really, really, uh, really pure. But jewelers and, now, they don't sell that stuff now, right? Did you, don't. did you, was that you or was that kind of a... No, we, we led, we led that, 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 that way of doing it. And also our doorway was a big, 
like was based on the Hong Kong gold markets back in those days. So it was a big roller door. When you opened up, you were basically more or less on the street, which is quite fearful. Um, but you fearful, see, what do you mean? Well, in those days, you see a, a jewelry shop would, would have a small doorway and it'd be all the women inside with the teased, the teased up hair. And they'd be in suits and say, may I help you please? And it was so formal and so stiff. But we broke all that mold and made it easy for people to look at these gorgeous windows and then they'd slip along the window. Next thing they're in the shop. And of course, well, then we, we, we could approach them in a, in a, in a subtle way and, and, and make a sale, hook them we'll, in. We'll flash forward yeah. really quick. Yeah, sure. I, I, we don't need to talk about it yet, but for those yeah. listening who are saying, where's the golf? Where's mm. the golf? This is mm. a golf podcast. Yeah. Um, Sir Michael is responsible for what could be the coolest golf club and course on the planet. I've been here now for a day. There's no dress code, and the place is incredible. We'll get into that in a little bit, but but I want to go back to the idea of you you. So you said something interesting. So so you were interested in getting people in the store, and you talked about um, the idea of your your sale items being a loss leader. So yes. you would you would you would put things on sale. Yes. How many stores do you have right now? You got five hundred, six hundred. Uh, we 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 got three hundred and something shops. Yeah. Three hundred and something shops. Yeah. You're uh you're wet. You're you're. You're just very successful, right? And so, and so, I'm just curious to know how how these ideas came about. You you would get people in the store with this loss leader. So basically, you would yes. you would you would basically make such a good deal for someone that you would lose money. Correct, correct. Well, you wouldn't make you wouldn't lose, but you wouldn't make any money on it. When in fact, you would lose money if you did that all the while. So, but you needed something to attract that was going to draw people towards you, and that did it. And then they would basically buy a second thing, or correct. And then it's up to us to sell the, the first, the second, the third item. Uh, I mean, um, you're selling jewelry is probably one of the most emotional purchases that all it is. It's a very sacred. I mean, there's the wedding band, and there's the engagement ring, and then there's then there's the bridesmaid's presence and the groom's presence, and then there's the you know, it goes on, and then there's the anniversaries, and there's uh, anniversaries forever, and there's your birthstone of the month, and. And well, let's talk the, about watches. Yes, because yes. you're you talked about how re watch repair was early for you. Yes, it was. Um, watches are new to me, mm. and I am a very uh, function over form kind of guy. So, mm. a, so mm. a, a a watch of value mm. for most of my life had no meaning until I ascribed meaning to it, similar mm. to jewelry. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, well, I mean, there's, there's, there's two styles. I see you wearing a Rolex, which is a, a lovely. It's a Tudor. Uh, it's close. Uh, that, that's right. Which is <laughs> which is is really nice. Um, we 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 can't compete in that in that market, or we could, but we don't. Uh, so ours are more sort of you know a middle middle of market really. Um, and you know, I've got one of the watches on, but I was quite, curious to know what watch this is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it's it's a Michael Hill watch, of course. Oh, you make your oh, own do, watches? We do, indeed. Oh, yes, indeed. I've yes. seen a few of these around the clubhouse today, <laughs> and I confused it with the Panerai from far away. Yeah, yeah. This yeah, is yeah. a nice. This it, is a chronograph. It, yeah, um, that's right. And we've the, got a twelve and, and a six and on the black face. And steel. It looks quite nice, doesn't yes. it? With a canvas band on this it. Is right. sort it's of, got um, good weight to it. Good weight. Maybe forty-six millimeters. Yeah, and it's it's. It's it's very reliable. It's got an electronic movement. It's particularly reliable. I like it. Yeah, that's nice. So it's got a military look with this uh, canvas strap. Correct. Yes. Oh, I like this. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you. That's thank impressive you. that you make that. Yes. Yes. I didn't definitely. realize that. Yeah. No. No. Well, what we're trying to do is brand ourselves and become more of our own brand because when we started off, of course, we sold every 
this thing that everybody else sold. So then the difference was in price. But what we've found, of course, over, you know, there's a sense in the last 40 years, of course, you can't do the same thing as you've always done. And, and everything's changed. So what we've had to do now is become more into our own design. At the moment, we're 20%, 100% our own product. But within three years, we want to be 100% of our own product okay. and sell nobody else. So there's my wife who's designed three collections of jewellery. Oh, I've right. designed the engagement rings. And then there's my son who's a sculptor, as you might have seen his big court and steel works on the golf course. So he, he's done some sculptural pieces which are about to be released. So, Good. Yeah, so that that's the way forward. Retail's so, changed enormously. Let me switch gears just a tiny bit. I'm um, mm. curious to know about... Um, you, you know, again, you, you talked about nothing went your way until the age of 40 to mm. the extent that you, mm. uh, built a nest with your wife, mm. a house that took three times as long as you intended and then watched it burn to the ground. Yeah. That's a tragic story that anyone who works for their money would, would have a very hard time overcoming. Yeah, you, yeah. you talked about after that event, you received a, a moment of clarity. Can you explain that? Because yes. because that to me is very interesting. I've had that in my own life in different ways. Right. Even the game of golf, obviously we hit a bad shot and then we are summoned to persevere. Yes. And I think that's why we enjoy the game of golf and maybe why you do mm. as well as anybody listening. Mm. So, so talk about this moment of clarity. Well, the thing is, um, when you have... I've always, I mean, I'd read all the books. I'd read Dale Carnegie and Wheatley, all the, all the books on how to do it, how to be successful, and it all told you in goal setting, goodness knows what. I'd done all of that, but I just couldn't, I couldn't, I just, it was just to make the first move. To make that step was the most difficult, and it is the biggest challenge is to make that first move. So when you've actually got what they call Hobson's choice, which are here, which means uh, Hobson is, uh, was in a battle and uh, they, they had no choice. It was only one thing he could do. Uh-huh. So it's a bit like um, you've crossed the bridge and the bridge is burnt and you've got to make a move. You, this, you, you, well, I really had, I had, I did have two options. I could have been a wimp. I could have gone back and worked for my uncle for the rest of my life. And it'd been, we would have never have done anything. It would be interesting. I probably would have, you know, you'd never heard of me again. Or I took the jump from there. And it was pretty obvious there when everything's the searing heat that you realize, my God, I've got to do it. And that was the moment. That's the most difficult thing that everybody has to do with goal setting. I mean, I talk about goal setting. I've written books on goal setting. I set 30-year goals. But it's the first step forward that's the hard one to take. And something occurred in this moment, too. This moment this moment of clarity wasn't just about setting one goal. I, you had said, I believe when we were talking, mm. you said mm. that it was also about realizing who you had been up until that moment and you were dissatisfied. Is that true? I, I was dissatisfied and, and I, I realized, you know, there's I'd always head in the back. The, the ideas were all there. They just needed letting coming out. So and they spilled out that night of the house fire. They just spilled out and great quantities of ideas but the thing is with goal setting is also keeping it very simple Mm. and I really was quite simplistic in what I wanted I just wanted I just wanted to get my uncle's business and if I couldn't get it I needed to open my own shop so it was a very simple goal it wasn't complex mustn't be complex because if there's too many things going on there you never once again you never do it 
bit like the people who smoke. You know, there's a lot of people smoke and no, they shouldn't smoke. And you, you, you say to them, oh, um, I thought you were giving out. Say, oh, yeah, I'm going to give up next week, next week. You know, and then you get to the next week and, oh, oh, yeah, oh it's next month. I'm going to do that. They're always making excuses for what it is. And so that there was no excuses that night because I really had to make a very quick decision on this. I mean, yeah, I, I just needed to do it. And I made it just like that. And from then on, it became like you were opening. If you had a series of books, and this this is um, we were in volume um, four of twelve. Um, the next book you open was a total clarity of mind, a total clarity of what to be done. But remember as well as that, I had a great apprenticeship. I mean, I had an enormously long apprenticeship. What I learned, so you could say, well, I, I fluked it, but I I really learned the art of selling from my dad. He used to be a vacuum cleaner salesman. I learned that amazingly how good you know a, a brilliant technique i had the artistic side to me i did the uh, I, I could i could see the marketing i used to do some crazy adverts and papers and everything was very unusual and very different and then keeping things simple in the shops and keeping the the product simple and and, and displaying it beautifully so that it, it looked very attractive for what you were selling you, uh, as far as selling goes, mm. were you ever involved in the one-to-one, -one, like directly with the customer? Yes, definitely. What, yeah. what did you learn about mm. the, a people there? Yes, well, the, the interesting thing about um, selling is, of course, every situation is minuscally different, sometimes dramatically different. And you can write books, so there's books on selling. We've got books on selling ourselves. But every situation that takes um, years of maturity to understand the different complexity that they're going to creep in at any second into that sale. And that's what makes it so exciting, really, is being able to to have somebody that is possibly not a buyer and turn them into a, a, a willing and a, and a very happy purchase. There's a very fine line here between pushy selling, which is diabolically bad, um, uh, to being too airy fairy and never actually nailing us or never closing us out. So being able to balance those um, is 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 um, is difficult. But when it's achieved, you have a you you not only have the money and the tool, but you have that person as a customer and a friend for life. I used to have people that had come back. They'd bring me sponge cakes for afternoon tea and morning tea, and they'd come in to have a chat. And it was such an amazing feeling of all these people that loved coming in, and uh, we love them as well. Well, they, they trusted you on a degree where they probably mm. don't trust that many people. I mean, mm. you know, uh, again, like, you know, buying a car or renting a house or owning a house or mm. paying your bills, those are all one set of things that you can pay for. You essentially don't have much of a choice. I mean, you have some choice. But, but jewelry, I mean, on some level, mm. like, you know, it's not mandatory that you buy it, that yeah. you can buy any style. It's, it's, it's literally you buy it because you desire to spend the money for someone else. It's, mm. it's like a, in and of itself, it's like a, a, a pleasant experience. It's probably not that different from music, actually, now that I think about it. No, and music's not that different from playing golf, either, which is an interesting thing as well. Strange enough, there's two things in that are very similar. Uh, the, the putting stroke and the, the violin bow stroke are quite a similar 
and the slightest bit of nervousness in when you're you're supposed to be playing something with a pure sound when you pull the strings across the uh, <laughs> the violin bow um the uh, if one has you know is is really trembling underneath it all it, it comes across slightly jerky which spoils that beautiful and the same with as you know with putting <laughs> if you're feeling nervous and shaky it doesn't work so well it does not um <laughs> how often do you uh, how often do you pick up a, a wind instrument these days Sorry? How often do you pick up a violin these days? Oh, oh well, I, I'm, uh, I, I have fits and starts on that. Um, uh, at the moment, I'm not uh, playing. I'm playing more golf, than, which is crazy. But I have a beautiful violin. I'm very privileged to have a, a, a Guadagnini, which was made in, um, well, there wasn't much happening in New Zealand, 1755. Wow. In beautiful condition. And he was sort of the, the next maker after Stradivarius. Is, um, yes, is uh, not quite as famous. But his violins are um, have a supreme um, carry in sound and tone. So the difference between a really fine violin like a Guadagnini or a Stradivarius is that in a concert hall with say five thousand people with no amplification can be heard on the back row, and it's 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 unbelievably uh, amazing really because you play a a violin that might sound very nice, you know, when it's close as you within six foot. But in a, in a big hall like that, you may not hear any sound at all over a big orchestra. So you need you need that robust, um, beautiful, um, mellow Italian sound to be able to come out. And that's where uh, that's where the great artists, um, a lot of them can't afford these, and so have to be loaned them. But uh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Astonishingly expensive. Yes. Let's jump into golf after a quick sure. break, everybody. All right, Precision Pro, everybody. A lot of you slip into the DMs over there, and you ask me what the best rangefinder is. The answer is it's the Precision Pro. Now, I used to say it was the NX7, but not anymore. Precision Pro Golf is the makers of award-winning golf rangefinders. Literally award-winning, folks. Do not get the words twisted, okay? Uh, they save golfer strokes on the course and save dollars in the wallets. Because the truth is the dollars should stay in the wallets. Well, I guess, no, I guess they're supposed to leave the wallet. But the point is you want them to leave as slowly as possible. So the point is Precision Pro is excited to announce the all-new NX9. We didn't even mess with the NX8. We went straight to the 9. NX9 HD rangefinder. Skipped the 8. Straight over to the 9. I went from par to eagle like that, okay? Anyway, it's their most advanced rangefinder ever with a wider and brighter display. I love things that are wider and brighter. It's an iPhone screen, whatever you want to call it, projector. I don't know. Fairways. Just give me something that's wider and brighter. It's, uh, it delivers incredibly fast measurements. I can say from personal experience, that is true. There's also a built-in magnet. Oh, I love magnets too. Uh, that allows golfers to securely attach the NX9 to the cart or even an iron so that the rangefinder is always within reach for every single swing. You can pick up the all-new NX9 HD rangefinder for $20 off. All you got to do is use the promo code ERIC. That's E-R-I-K on the website, precisionprogolf.com. The NX9 HD comes with a lifetime battery replacement. Whoa! I need lifetime battery replacement. How is annoying is it when you show up and your rangefinder is dead? Well, this one never dies, okay? It's like Liam Neeson in this bitch. Sorry, I didn't mean to curse. But anyway... <laughs> 
The NX9 comes with a HD lifetime battery replacement services and a... Wow, I messed that up. I'm going to start over. <laughs> the NX9 HD comes with a lifetime battery services replacement, battery replacement services, and a two-year warranty. Two years. You're not even going to live that long. This rangefinder is going to outlive you on all scales. Anyway, it's the NX9, and it's all part of the industry-leading customer service that Precision Pro Golf delivers to every customer. I have never heard a bad word about Precision Pro since I've been recommending it personally. So you heard it here first, folks. Get your $20 off the NX9 HD or any Precision Pro uh, rangefinder that's great. Coupon code ERIC, E-R-I-K, at PrecisionProGolf.com. Last words, y'all. Swing with confidence. Hit more greens with Precision Pro Golf. All right. One more read, folks. Adidas. Over 5 million pieces of plastic are floating in our oceans, which over time get broken down, making it easy for sea life to ingest, ultimately affecting our own food chain. So it is your problem. It's not just a world problem. It's you. It affects you. Adidas is working with Parlay to prevent plastic entering our oceans and transform it into high-performance sportswear. Mm -hmm. Shoes is coming soon. Just hold on. Hold your hats, folks. I'm not even done with the ad. Stop trying to figure out what I'm going to say. Adidas is spinning the problem into what? A solution. The thread into a thread. I don't know what that means. It's written here. It says the thread into a thread. I don't know who wrote this. Adidas Golf is bringing eco-innovation to the golf course in a, the form of a special edition shoe. All right, this is legit, actually. This is the first time the Parlay shoe has been uh, a golf shoe. I've had it in... Um, form of a running shoe i mean look it's a it's a sick shoe that serves a purpose okay that's where you get it um the tour 360 xt parlay the first ever golf shoe oh looks they already wrote it for me the first ever golf shoe made from uh recycled oh no it's not called recycled it's called upcycled i don't know what that is i feel like i should probably google that upcycled plastic waste that was intercepted like jason Bourne from the Beaches and coastal communities before reaching the ocean. Dang, I didn't realize this is Jason Bourne's golf shoe. Intercepted. I mean, the, I'm a golf guy, but I also love football. Who doesn't love a classic interception? Especially when it's Jason Bourne saving planet Earth. Entire upper of the shoe is made with threads spun... It's also a DJ. Amazing. From the upcycled plastic waste. My phone's ringing. It's Andrew Marler. Hang on. All right. Well, that was a 20-minute phone call, but you have no idea. It just went by like that. Um, anyway, the Tour 360 XT Parlay, the first ever golf shoe made from upcycled plastic. I already read this because it's got the intercepted line. Intercepted from beaches and coastal communities in a world before reaching the ocean. The entire upper of the shoe is made from thread spun from upcycled plastic waste. Built is built as the Tour 360 XT, you still get great traction and stability. I feel like what's that line from Taken? I have a certain set of skills. <laughs> they will take you. Available starting June 10th. At adidas.com, and for those headed to the U.S. Open at Pebble Beach, a select number of pairs will be sold on site. Get into it, folks. All right, back to the show. 
Hey, Sklar Brothers here, Randy and Jason, and we have a couple of podcasts. If you you know them or you don't know them, check them out. We do View from the Cheap Seats, which is sports and comedy, and we have a podcast called Dumb People Town where we break down stupid behavior done by stupid people in this stupid world of ours. It is hilarious. Check them both out. And now, check out this podcast. So enter golf into Sir Michael Hill's life. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's an interesting story. You, your life is an interesting story. <laughs> I'm, again, I'm really grateful that we had time to sit down. Um, you basically, it starts out with with this uh, farm, with this with this piece of land that's relatively uh, unarable. Am I guessing not a lot of growing here right now? That's right, but it's uh, it's 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 deeper than that. And if I might tell you, it started actually probably back when at my hometown, where my mother was quite a good golfer. Uh, she's, she had two biggest swing actually, she, she, but however, she, she was a lovely golfer. My father was a diabolically bad golfer. So they were in a, a sort of a hostile combination. And, uh, I can remember one day my, my father playing golf and he played the first three holes really well. And the next hole he lost it. And I can remember him throwing a club way up in this, this big tree and it wouldn't come down. And, uh, the embarrassment, he had to come back later and get a ladder and get the, get the thing out. But, uh. Um, so I was really brought up with golf there. And then for some reason, when I was um, 11, I at my, my parents' house, which was why the, the high school, the Wangare Boys High School, um, uh, they had a, a you know, very, small, um, um, very small piece of land um, with a house, mainly, mainly all take my house. But around that, I, 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 I put in an 18 hole, I made an 18 hole golf course with baked bean cans upside down. And I'm called the Red Star Golf Course. And I had members, I got all the members from the Wangare Boys High School. And it was one and sixpence a year to, for an annual membership. And my parents wow. who were in the jewelry business had trophy cups. So I got some old uncollected ones, the one with the wrong engraving on it, whatever those as, as trophies. Yeah, that's right. So I started the Red Star Golf Course. And I think that actually tweaked it. It was in my subconscious. So when we came down here to, to a Queenstown, uh, the first thing I did when we bought our piece of land in 95 was to put a green in front of the house. Really? Yes. And on, then, this, on this site or a different uh, yes, site? Yes, on the one just, it was just over under the, the pine trees there, which is a little bit, it's just by Dragonfly Lake, number, hole number six. Okay. Uh, but anyhow, so I put a green there and then I put another green and I put three greens as a chip and putt. And then I, we had, uh, I would give, um, we'd have a tournament with Millbrook across the road. And uh, we called our place then Hillbrook. And we'd, we'd, they'd play 18 holes over there. And then for a charity, they'd come over here and they have a shootout on my par threes. And you know, I always just thought it was a bit tame having a chip and putt. And then one day I got hold of the golf architecture design, this John Darby, and I said, wouldn't it? could you put in a proper grunty um, par four for me? Uh, which, which he um, said, so which is Dragonfly Lake, which is uh, our number one um, hole. Uh, so we built that and um, he said, well, while we're down here, why don't we put one back to the house? Because it's silly going through this deer, over these deer fences to this, and we can't get back. So I said, that's a great idea. And then when it finished, he said, look, why don't you build an 18-hole course? He said, I'll build <laughs> He said, I'll build one with no bunkers. And I said, I'll keep it really simple. And then I can do it for four million. And I shook hands. And um, it set me on the way. Seven years later, 18 million spent. We were 
we were nearly there because I didn't have a clubhouse. So that, that's how it sort of all happened. How does that? How do you? How do you? Uh, how do you end up quadrupling or or more mm. actually? Mm. Uh, more than that, four and a half times. How mm. how does that happen? What 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 very simple part of you yes. did that? Is is it the pursuit of greatness? Is it uh, you're learning more about building a golf course? Is it you're deciding you want something different? What is it? It was just a, it was a, a spontaneous. Uh, probably really looking back, you'd probably think it was one of the stupidest things I did. But the silly part about it, it's turned out to be one of the best things I ever did because the land that. I have got for this golf course. I mean, there's 500 acres in the heart of a place which is getting heavily subdivided around. I mean, you pay a million dollars for a little section outside. And I've got this, I got this first lot of land for very, very little. And then I gradually acquired the square mile of farm back, but uh, which I paid a lot more for. But it's a glorious and it's a beautiful investment. And I mean, what's better backyard so anyhow we finished this golf course and we had to think of the name we called it the hills and then we built a clubhouse and that, that, that. The, the hills is a genius name <laughs> i mean it's just too good it's 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 of all the names of all the golf courses it might be the best double meaning name because we're in a valley that really is unlike any valley i've ever been in in my life i mean i've been to jackson hole i've been to okay. switzerland i've been been in a lot of mountainous places mm. colorado but but there are very few that have such a habitable valley here. Multiple golf courses, obviously. You're not the only one, but mm. they they all are in this incredibly picturesque. Every every way you look is a photograph. Aren't we so lucky, really. And the thing is, you can in the winter time, uh, with all the white um, snow on all the mountains, you can actually ski in the morning and play golf here in the afternoon. I mean, where can you do that? It's quite crazy. Really. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> I'm looking forward to the return. Um, also, just as a side note, are you are you comfortable talking about who rents your house when you're not there? Um, oh, we we could we could mention it if you like. That's okay. It's a brilliant yeah. story. So not only are we nestled in these wonderful mountains, mm. Mm. but you're basically James Bond. You've got James Bond's house, and it's rented by many celebrities when they come to visit. Yes, well, well, the thing is, it's the Lodge at the Hills. And um, once again, it was the entrepreneurial thing or, or um, the wish for, you know, because we, we spent considerable amount of money, and the house is, uh, is particularly large. I mean, it, it's got um, six um, bedrooms with large en suites, and um, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, I must take you across here with a beautiful collection of, of, of art as well. Um, and we've, we've got to talk, we've got sculptures on the golf course. So it's it's a, a quite sublime, really. But we don't let it out very often because it's a quite quite expensive. But we do, you know, to the, you know, the Katy Perry's and those sort of people of all, you know, there's a, there's a list of um, of, of celebrities that, that take that. Uh, it's uh, amazing, really. Just on a retreat. They're not mm. playing a show in Queenstown. They're just stopping through and they want a couple nights. Yeah, they'll probably, uh, they have to, they have to we, we don't let it for anything less than six days. six days normally it's uh it's over a week for is this a on, so it is on is it on airbnb or it's just it's no there's a secret number you call uh no well it's it's done through an agent who agent, has right. worked out that right but we right. are the most uh i mean not that it means anything but we are the most expensive uh lodge in in in, in australasia period yeah, yeah, that's that's something cool. I mean, that's cool. I mean, clearly it's worth it to people who have the money mm. to pay. Yes, yes. That's a dream. You know, I, I one of my favorite things, obviously, mm. I think the golf course is great. I haven't played all of the holes yet. Mm. Um, I love the idea of the sculpture. We'll get into that in a second. Every mm. hole has mm. some really beautiful sculpture. But yeah. the thing I really like is you've made such a piece of art out of the clubhouse. Thank it's you. it's an, obviously a won an award yes. um, by a famed uh, Kiwi architect, yes, right? Yes, yes. 
um, half underground, half above ground, really goes back to this James Bond experience. The, yes. the clubhouse to me is, in some ways, the the central nervous system of the golf course. It's yes. where the people spend time together, where we talk about our round, where we wait for the weather to pass, where we eat food, where we plan our next trip. You know, the clubhouse is such an important part of the game of golf, and I feel like you hit the nail on the head. And by the way, Thank if you. you're listening and you're thinking that I'm being too nice, I promise <laughs> I'm barely scraping the surface. Michael is not paying me to be here. There's none of that. I'm here for the New Zealand oh, Open. It's totally separate. Thank you. But it's a piece of art, and I just really mm. wanted to applaud you for that. Thank you. Well, it didn't happen quite so easily, really, because we had uh, we had two architects. There was one that designed a house. New Zealand architects are quite... Uh, way out in the thinking. Um, I, I guess because we're not restricted in New Zealand, we can do really, uh, you know, they can they, they can think totally different, and they're not restricted by any class system or anything else. So, so what is that? You mean you mean there's more permitting rules in other countries? I think there would be more rules, and I think people are probably um, brought up uh, stricter in, into a sort of a style, and 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 a more formalized train. But here it's sort of more free. So Andrew, kind of like the vibe of New Zealand in general. I think so. I yeah. think so, and it has created quite a uh, a lot of entrepreneurs uh, in New Zealand. So anyway, Andrew Patterson, who actually got the position for the clubhouse, right? We had no idea it was going to be. We thought it was going to be where number one is up, looking up over the valley, mm-hmm. uh, which we'd have had difficulty for consent anyhow. But he said, it's, one no. of, "It's the highest point on the property." Yes, it's right. exactly. So, but he said, "No, I would like it here." But in saying that, we had to move an enormous amount of earth to put it here, but uh, <laughs> it took, you know, quite a, a huge amount of um, earth moving. But it, it looks quite natural, and the the thing is, it's it's cantilever. It's quite an engineering feat. It's like a diving board, really, because if you stand on the very top of the building at the front and jump, it actually does spring oh my because it, it'll take up to three meters of snow on 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 the roof. So it's. Uh, and and it's it's pivoted right back in underground. We're underground. We are, but two thirds of the building, including cart sheets, when the ground has a grass roof, so you don't even know it's here. So it's yeah. like a bunker, really, isn't it? It's really beautiful, it, and it's just to me, it's just a feat. Um, you just said something that really <laughs> made me think about yeah. what it must be like to collaborate with you. You said we wanted to put it here, but we but you know we didn't, and. It made me think of the story about the wolves and this the wolf sculpture oh, yes, yes. and how uh, there was an idea of where that should go. And then the artist said no. Well, it was so funny, really, because I was in Beijing with not the slightest clue of having a, you know, a piece of art here, except I, there was a big square in 798, which is the art district where all the artists have got sort of a... Um, they show their, their wares. It used to be an old industrial area. And I was there um, one afternoon and... Um, uh, I came around the corner and there was a big square with one lone tree in the center of it. And there was all these wolves in there. It was 110, um, these cast iron wolves, bigger than life size. And everyone was playing on the children were playing them and laughing and chatting and parents were pulling their tails. And it was just such a, an amazing thing. So I thought, well, wouldn't it be lovely to own two or three of these? So they got the artist um he wasn't they got him and he came about an hour later and they jabbled away and you know i couldn't understand the word they're talking about and said i was interested and they came up with a price for them which was uh, quite horrific so i said thanks very much and i walked away from that but about a year later i got a i got a, a message from um from uh, a consultant of his and say no, that, can i just interrupt you for a second so you're you're talking about negotiating the price of a piece of art yes yes now you're they're in they're speaking Chinese 
Yes. Who that knows? That speak Chinese. Mandarin. Who knows? <laughs> but but you're in this gallery, and you say, I'm interested. Mm. They start talking, and they give you a price. Mm. Now, at that point, do you know how much you're going to pay? Like, what's the business aspect of buying a piece of art? Because, I mean, yes. by the way, those of you, those of you listening, the piece of art weighs... Three oh, tons. Well, th- how many is, tons? It, are they, 300 they, tons? They, 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 uh, the total, I don't know, but each one is would weigh, uh, um, oh, that's a very good point, we know about 500 pounds each one, I'd say. I think I read and it was like 300 tons or something. Yeah, yeah. there's, there's a heck of a lot of uh, weight it's, there. It's 100 wolves that are made out of like, 110, 110 wolves <laughs> made out of solid, but I'm curious to know, if it, so it's a yeah. massive piece of work, it obviously Huge. struck you. Huge. I found it very beautiful. Thank you. The business aspect of it. Yes. You, are, do you have a number in your head of what you're willing to pay? Well, at that stage, I didn't. I just had a gut feeling that the the the, the price, you know, to have bought the whole lot was just would wouldn't even wouldn't have even considered. Would have run into millions, and I thought this is this is crazy. But anyhow, this guy, that this lady, so you actually, didn't want to buy it. You, you thought maybe you would buy it if they were willing to give it away, essentially. Well, uh, not give it away, but you know, at a price that you felt was you know was uh, within my reach. So anyhow, this this um, girl and we 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 talked and um, we did a thing, and then the price came down to well, I thought it was particularly reasonable. And how um, much? How much down from the original price they had quoted? Oh, you? like um, like three hundred percent down. Three hundred percent was the enormous difference. So I they know. drop it three hundred, and and yeah. Hill says, "I'll take it." Yeah, well, it, well, I said, "I'll take it." So, but I, I didn't realize how much I get because it was four forty-foot containers, and and and, <laughs> and one big one where there's a big warrior that had they had his head sticking out the top of it, <laughs> and we got all this stuff out here and uh, cleared it through custom, put it on the property. I mean, the shipping must have been thirty thousand dollars. Well. It, it, uh, well, he, 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 the, the deal was that he, he would pay for the shipping. Anyhow, I was going to say, did you include the shipping? <laughs> Good for you. So anyhow, so we, we had an area cleared for it. We thought, well, we'll put them here, which is uh, just down at the bottom of the driveway. If you come up to the to the clubhouse on the on on the the, uh, the, uh, the up, um, on the left hand side, but and we so you when the be, artist you wanted to be on the driveway. Uh, yeah, sort of. Oh, and then, uh, so he came out, we flew him out, he couldn't speak English, he had written interpreter with him, paid his trip out of course, and we put him up here, and then he came out, and I could see he was mesmerized with the scenery, and then we showed him the spot, and you could see his face go, oh, oh, and then, and that says, and then this guy comes and says, he, not happy, not happy, doesn't want it here. Not I said, okay, okay, that's fine. Let's, and I thought they'd look great in the coming out of the pine trees by the clubhouse below. Smart. Them. I thought they'd look lovely there. So we took him over there and his pace went longer again. No, no, not interested. I said, oh dear. Was okay. this part of the deal that he would choose? Uh, well, I, I really thought that the artist should, uh, every piece of sculpture, I've always given the artist a hand for it. But hold on, what's next? So he, he walks around and he loves the 18th, you see. So he wanted to put them right in the middle of the 18th fairway, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so, a hundred wolves. Yeah, so I said, I said, no, no. And he said, yes, yes, no, no. Never, yes, no, no. And if we move over, we move them over. Oh, maybe, yep, yeah, move them over, move them over. Yes, yes, no, no, yeah, yeah, yes, that'll do. Shook hands, that's with it. And then he, he over the next week, uh, we had a big crane. And then he, he knew exactly where he wanted them. And he just say, this one goes there, that one there. So they're all placed according, because it says the wolves are coming, which is uh, it's by Ru Luong. And um, it's um, the, the, the theory is behind it that the wolves are hungry, and in China, even though things look really good um, politically, sometimes you don't know, and you might have a knock on the door, 
and they take you away. So that's why the wolves are coming at you. That's why the wolves are hungry. Yeah, the wolves. I, the experience, you know, I love art. I really do. Um, and there's a couple other Chinese artists that I'm a big fan of. Do you know Chai Go Chong? Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a wonderful artist. He, probably large-scale projects, similar. Um, but, you know, I like the idea that you can walk through the art and experience it. And, and this particular piece, The Wolves Are Coming, mm-hmm. you walk through it and you're filled with, like, wonder and terror. Which is probably what maybe he exactly wanted. Exactly right. Exactly. You know, they have that feel. There's no doubt about it. They That's are right. real wolves with their fangs out. And I actually, when you put, when you get close to it, it's hard to really remember that it's a static, inanimate object. Thank you. Thank you. That's right. So great choice. And it's also quite a surprise because people don't realize they're there until they've come up for their first shot from the from the 18th and then they come over the hill and think oh my goodness look at this right so it's a great it gets a lot of photography you put uh you put sculptures on a golf course mm. i don't see that very often no. uh in fact i've only seen it one other time in my life mm-hmm. what i i mean did were you inspired where did the idea come from who did any how many people i'm curious to know actually just as a side note how many people to you say no obviously not as many now that you can merely afford to work with whoever you want. But but throughout your life, what do you do when people say no? Because I have an experience with it, and it's difficult to hear no when you believe what you want to do is right. The problem is that it's just different. Yes, it depends what you mean by no. When when you, when you, you have to explain a little bit more. When you say they say no, in what circumstances? Well, I think what I mean is, what I guess I was getting at specifically yeah. is, you shouldn't have it sculptures on a golf course I see. Michael. I got you got you oh there is quite a bit of that and in fact even locally there was a we have a um uh, because there's uh everything's site sensitive and one of the first pieces I put uh which were those reeds that are, you, you see there's yes uh, and they were brighter color then they were those on, were designed by your son uh, no, no no they were done by a condomopolis a greek fellow lives in melbourne uh and we put those up and then the council um uh, someone complained and we had to take everything all down and get the big truck in and pick the big slabs underneath and, and move the whole thing. That's where they, they are. There's not quite as good a position. So the council were very much, because they had it as the same rule as building a home as to a, a piece of art, which was quite weird, really. But anyhow, they seem to have become more sympathetic if they've seen the, uh, that, you know, we're not abusing the landscape. And they add a, a sort of a, a tweak to something which is quite, I think, quite nice, really. It worked out in the end. It worked out really well. Well, I mean, on some level, mm. what are you doing here at the hills? It very in a very in in in. in I like to boil things down to the simplest, mm. most important essence. Mm. What are you actually doing at the hills? What what, what yeah. is it? It's well, not a I mean, golf course. Well, I mean, um, I, I cannot be a more lucky person. Really, I'm so privileged to live in the probably the well in my mind one of the most beautiful valleys on. The planet. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, anyone to live here is a, is an absolute privilege, and it's an incredible place. But it's even deeper than that because, um, as well as my wife, I also have my my daughter, who's who's a chair of our board, and she has two children and a, and, a, and, a, and a husband. And then I have my son, who's also married with two older boys, and they live all on the property. So we have five hundred acres, and I've got my best friends and my family. Um, at our age, I mean, I'm 80 now, but we've got them. Um, Mark will be 50 this year. It's hard to believe, really. But anyhow, we've got all our all our family around us, and we're a, we're close knit family, and uh, we respect each other. But we each have our own freedom. So they've both built homes here, and I mean, how how good would that be that you're with your family on your your own plot of land? 
in the middle of this paradise. And every morning you get out and you look and you think, oh, my God, look at this. It's unbelievable. It really is unbelievable. I mean, well, mm. I've, I've now... I, I, I rarely find myself mm. continually saying that something is so interesting and mm. unusual, especially mm. something new. Mm. That's hard for me. I, I really am much going much more, and especially that's something that's landlocked, mm. right? For me, yes. golf, yeah. right? It's by the ocean, and it's really, really old. Yeah. You have built a brand new place that is not by the ocean, <laughs> and I'm still continually blown away by it. I mean, geez, it's 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 incredible. Um, so, and then you go ahead and you uh, you grab up uh, Darius, and you decide to throw yes. another t- yes. twist on the property here. Oh yes, yes, yes. So pleased with him. I, I, I what I did say, I think he could be um, probably the the greatest young golf course designer in the world. He has a a beautiful knack of making something look so simple like nothing's ever been touched and you've just got the mower out and mowed around and which is same so difficult to do to achieve that and there's nothing contrived and it just seemed to sit there like nature just did it how, how did you had you been to cave wickham before how did you how did you find yes, him? yes well that was um uh, that was one of the reasons we we, we did take him on because of that gorgeous Course. For those listening that don't know Cape Wickham, uh, Darius built it. I think it jumped immediately inside the top 100 on the it, world. It did. It's on a tiny island uh, called King Island off the coast of Tasmania. I had the wonderful uh, pleasure of going with Stuart, my best friend, mm-hmm. and we just, our mouths could not shut. We could not close our mouths. Amazing, isn't it? So did you go to Cape Wickham? Uh, and you- I haven't been there was on, on just reports. And also, uh, I had great faith in uh, my manager who runs it, uh, Brendan Allen. And Craig Palmer, my pro, who both said, yeah, this is the guy we have to have. So I said, right, we're going to go with him. And they said, I said, but can we afford this? They said, we're going to do it all in-house. We're going to do this. We're going to have him here. And then we're going to design this all. Now, we're not going to have, we're not going to use it outside Toronto. I said, okay, well. That's smart. And, and, and we went with it. And he was an interesting, Darius would come here. And he sort of like went into a meditation trance. And he'd sit in a spot like for two days. And it couldn't disturb him. he go and sleep and come back to that spot. And, and then he and then he'd start walking around and he, he, he sort of so he, he took a lot a lot of a lot of um thinking to get this right. Speaking uh I mean I guess we can just jump I mean we played the part three. It was incredible. <laughs> Look the point is you gotta come check it out. But you said you just said uh trance and I know that you're into TM, transcendental mm. meditation. Mm-hmm. Um how did you get into TM? Uh, well, when we came, uh, we were living in Australia. When we set up our jewelry business, we went to um, Queensland and we started up in Brisbane. And uh, But then when we moved back here five years later, um, we took a little apartment, first of all, in, in Frankton, which is uh, just, just, just slightly out of uh, Queenstown. And next door was a, um, a, a guru, I think, like a New Zealand, one of the meditators, a painter and a guru. And he was, always had a calmness. And he says, why did you try meditation? So we both tried that, and that's where it sort of started. Do you find it has an effect on your golf game? Um, uh, that's a very interesting question. Golf, at me, is, 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 a, is a very uh, complex thing. That's something that uh, I still haven't quite got my head completely around that one. Uh, and uh, So I have, got, I have got a weakness there. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you love the game. I love the game. I love the game. Why? What is it about the game of golf that really attracts you? Well, it's a love and a hate thing. But as well as that, I think more than the playing, I enjoy the creating. And what I like in the creation is also um, the people that are creating 
and 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 the team here uh, i think you possibly have noticed but right from the clubhouse to all the green stuff the whole lot there's just this touch of excellence every way through and we recognize those people we love them we care for them and it doesn't matter whether you've got the most sublime place anywhere in the world it's all the people in the end that make a difference and if you've got the right people then you can move mountains um, I I would love. Are the people listening? Do, can you play here without a member, or do you have to have a member to play with? You have to play with a member. Okay. Yes. Mm. Well, hopefully, if you're listening to this, you can find a member to play the hills with. Because again, it's a, it's a wonderful life experience that I'll treasure. Uh, I'm so glad that you uh, worked out the ability to have the New Zealand Open here. What a great! I mean, that, this must be a really proud week for you. It's wonderful. The hundredth year is a very special occasion for everybody, and I can't believe we've got it. I feel quite humble, really. It, yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> it is. It's really incredible. Um, I am pretty. I'm good. Do you have any questions for me? Uh, no. Well, I just say that you um, you have a wonderful voice, uh, and you know, a, a voice is very important in life, and a lot of people take voices for granted. But in the selling situation, if you mumble your words or you speak too quickly, or or uh, people can't understand exactly what you're saying. It never really works. So, but being a successful salesperson, a great voice. You have a great voice. I can see why you're so successful. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. I'll say one, you, you made me think of one thing that no one has heard yet on the podcast. A year ago, I went to a, a series of parties and I lost my voice. Oh. And um, it was the first time in my life that it ever happened. Um, I went to a doctor after it didn't get better. And she went down there with a camera and said, you have a, uh, a, a cyst oh on your vocal cord that oh has burst. Oh. So it popped. I wasn't able to uh, close the gap there with the vocal cords. She said, voice rest for two weeks. I was like, okay, I did it. She said, it's better. I went back in. She said, it's better, but it's still there. She said, I would try more voice rest. And I was like, I can't. I, you know, I just physically, I need to use my voice. And um, and then I went back every, every couple months and she was like, it's the same. You still have it. And then after a while, she said, you know, I'm beginning to think that you have had this cyst maybe for your whole life. Far out. And that's why your voice sounds the way it does. I could operate and remove it, but it might change the way your voice sounds. I think that'd be a bad move. <laughs> <laughs> I thought about that. I was like, that's you know amazing. what? amazing. The, the thing is, I can't yell. So I don't know if you noticed today, but I but I did I did hit one bad shot, and I, yeah. I can't yell four. Hmm. So it's not an ego thing. I just, <laughs> <laughs> but it's pretty funny. I really oh, I love it. I really I like love that. it. Oh no. Um, anyway, man. Well, I'm really looking forward to spending more time with you. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to spending time with you too, and maybe we can get out and have a walk around and and, and see some great golf. That'd be great. That'd be great. And everyone listening, obviously, you know that the videos are are on the YouTube channel where you can see. Uh, the round that uh, Sir Michael and I played this morning at the Par 3 contest. You can see the uh, the New Zealand Open where, obviously, me and Luke Toomey, a wonderful, creative, and, and, and great accomplished golfer from New Zealand, are going to play together. And so check all that stuff out. And uh, if you want some jewelry, if you're in wait, you, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia. That's right. Michael Hill. <laughs> that's the tagline apparently <laughs> everybody from new zealand knows that one um but but if you if you want some jewelry go check it out tell them i sent you um thank you again thank you very much